This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 14. In the creation of the world and all things in it, the true God distinguished by certain marks from fictitious gods. Sections. 7. A kind of prefects over kingdoms and provinces, but specially the guardians of the elect, not certain that every believer is under the charge of a single angel, enough that all angels watch over the safety of the church. 8. The number and orders of angels not defined, why angels said to be winged. 9. Angels are ministering spirits and spiritual essences. 10. The heathen error of placing angels on the throne of God refuted, one, by passages of Scripture. 11. Refutation continued, two, by inferences from other passages, why God employs the ministry of angels. Section 7. Whether or not each believer has a single angel assigned to him for his defense, I dare not positively affirm. When Daniel introduces the angel of the Persian and the angel of the Greeks, he undoubtedly intimates that certain angels are appointed as a kind of precedence over kingdoms and provinces. Again, when Christ says that the angels of children always behold the face of his Father, he insinuates that there are certain angels to whom their safety has been entrusted. But I know not if it can be inferred from this that each believer has his own angel. This indeed I hold for certain that each of us is cared for, not by one angel merely, but that all with one consent watch for our safety. For it is said of all the angels collectively that they rejoice over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. It is also said that the angels, meaning more than one, carried the soul of Lazarus into Abraham's bosom. Nor was it to no purpose that Elisha showed his servant the many chariots of fire which were specially allotted to him. There is one passage which seems to intimate somewhat more clearly that each individual has a separate angel. When Peter, after his deliverance from prison, knocked at the door of the house where the brethren were assembled, being unable to think it could be himself, they said that it was his angel. This idea seems to have been suggested to them by a common belief that every believer has a single angel assigned to him. Here, however, it may be alleged that there is nothing to prevent us from understanding it of any one of the angels to whom the Lord might have given the charge of Peter at that particular time, without implying that he was to be his perpetual guardian, according to the vulgar imagination. That two angels, a good and a bad, is a kind of genii, are assigned to each individual. After all, it is not worthwhile anxiously to investigate a point which does not greatly concern us. If anyone does not think it enough to know that all the orders of the heavenly host are perpetually watching for his safety, I do not see what he could gain by knowing that he was one angel as a special guardian. Those, again, who limit the care which God takes of each of us to a single angel do great injury to themselves and to all the members of the church, as if there were no value in those promises of auxiliary troops who on every side encircling and defending us embolden us to fight more manfully. Section 8. 
Those who presume to dogmatize on the ranks and numbers of angels would do well to consider on what foundation they rest. As to their rank, I admit that Michael is described by David as a mighty prince and by Jude as an archangel. Paul also tells us that an archangel will blow the trumpet, which is to summon the world to judgment. But how is it possible from such passages to ascertain the gradations of honor among the angels to determine the insignia and assign the place and station of each? Even the two names, Michael and Gabriel, mentioned in Scripture, or a third if you choose to add it from the history of Tobit, seem to intimate by their meaning that they are given to angels in accommodation to the weakness of our capacity though I rather choose not to speak positively on the point. As to the number of angels, we learn from the mouth of our Savior that there are many legions, and from Daniel that there are many myriads. Elisha's servant saw a multitude of chariots, and their vast number is declared by the fact that they encamp round about those that fear the Lord. It is certain that spirits have no bodily shape, and yet Scripture, in accommodation to us, describes them under the form of winged cherubim and seraphim, not without cause, to assure us that when occasion requires, they will hasten to our aid with incredible swiftness, winging their way to us with the speed of lightning. Farther than this, in regard both to the ranks and numbers of angels, let us class them among those mysterious subjects, the full revelation of which is deferred to the last day, and accordingly refrain from inquiring too curiously or talking presumptuously. Section 9. There is one point, however, which, though called into doubt by certain restless individuals, we ought to hold for certain, that angels are ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, whose service God employs for the protection of his people, and by whose means he distributes his favors among men and also executes other works. The Sadducees of old maintained that by angels nothing more was meant than the movements which God impresses on men, or manifestations which he gives of his own power, Acts 23.8. But this dream is contradicted by so many passages of Scripture that it seems strange how such gross ignorance could have had any countenance among the Jews. To say nothing of the passages I have already quoted, passages which refer to thousands and legions of angels, speak of them as rejoicing, as bearing up the faithful in their hands, carrying their souls to rest, beholding the face of their Father, and so forth. There are other passages which most clearly prove that they are real beings possessed of spiritual essence. Stephen and Paul say that the law was enacted in the hands of angels. Our Savior, moreover, says that at the resurrection the elect will be like angels, that the day of judgment is known not even to the angels that at that time he himself will come with the holy angels. However much such passages may be twisted, their meaning is plain. In like manner, when Paul beseeches Timothy to keep his precepts as before Christ and his elect angels, it is not qualities or inspirations without substance that he speaks of, but true spirits. And when it is said in the epistle to the Hebrews that Christ was made more excellent than the angels, that the world was not made subject to them, that Christ assumed not their nature, but that of man. It is impossible to give a meaning to the passages without understanding that angels are blessed spirits, as to whom such comparisons may competently be made. The author of that epistle declares the same thing when he places the souls of believers and the holy angels together in the kingdom of heaven. 
Moreover, in the passages we have already quoted, the angels of children are said to behold the face of God, to defend us by their protection, to rejoice in our salvation, to admire the manifold grace of God in the church, to be under Christ their head. To the same effect is their frequent appearance to the holy patriarchs in human form, their speaking and consenting to be hospitably entertained. Christ, too, in consequence of the supremacy which he obtains as mediator, is called the angel, Malachi 3.1. It was thought proper to touch on this subject in passing, with the view of putting the simple upon their guard against the foolish and absurd imaginations which, suggested by Satan many centuries ago, are ever and anon starting up anew. Section 10. It remains to give warning against the superstition which usually begins to creep in, when it is said that all blessings are ministered and dispensed to us by angels. For the human mind is apt immediately to think that there is no honor which they ought not to receive, and hence the peculiar offices of Christ and God are bestowed upon them. In this ways the glory of Christ was for several former ages greatly obscured, extravagant eulogiums being pronounced on angels without any authority from Scripture. Among the corruptions which we now oppose, there is scarcely any one of greater antiquity. Even Paul appears to have had a severe contest with some who so exalted angels as to make them almost the superiors of Christ. Hence, he so anxiously urges in his epistle to the Colossians, Colossians 1, 16 and 20, that Christ is not only superior to all angels, but that all the endowments which they possess are derived from him, thus warning us against forsaking him by turning to those who are not sufficient for themselves, but must draw with us at a common fountain. As the refulgence of the divine glory is manifested in them, there is nothing to which we are more prone than to prostrate ourselves before them in stupid adoration and then ascribe to them the blessings which we owe to God alone. Even John confesses in the Apocalypse, Revelation 19.10, as well as 22.8 and 9, that this was his own case, but he immediately adds the answer which was given to him, See thou, do it not, I am the fellow servant, worship God. Section 11 This danger we will happily avoid, if we consider why it is that God, instead of acting directly without their agency, is wont to employ it in manifesting his power, providing for the safety of his people, and imparting the gifts of his beneficence. This he certainly does not from necessity, as if he were unable to dispense with them. Whenever he pleases, he passes them by, and performs his own work by a single nod. So far are they from relieving him of any difficulty. Therefore, when he employs them, it is as a help to our weakness that nothing may be wanting to elevate our hopes or strengthen our confidence. It ought, indeed, to be sufficient for us that the Lord declares himself to be our protector. But when we see ourselves beset by so many perils, so many injuries, so many kinds of enemies, such as our frailty and effeminacy, that we might at times be filled with alarm or driven to despair, did not the Lord proclaim his gracious presence by some means in accordance with our feeble capacities? For this reason, he not only promises to take care of us, but assures us that he has numberless attendants to whom he has committed the charge of our safety, 
that whatever dangers may impend, so long as we are encircled by their protection and guardianship, we are placed beyond all hazard of evil. I admit that after we have a simple assurance of the divine protection, it is improper in us still to look round for help. But since for this our weakness the Lord is pleased, in his infinite goodness and indulgence, to provide, it would ill become us to overlook the favor. Of this we have an example in the servant of Elisha, Second Kings 6.17, who, seeing the mountain encompassed by the army of the Assyrians and no means of escape, was completely overcome with terror and thought it all over with himself and his master. Then Elisha prayed to God to open the eyes of the servant, who forthwith beheld the mountain filled with horses and chariots of fire, in other words, with a multitude of angels, to whom he and the prophets had been given in charge. Confirmed by the vision, he received courage and could boldly defy the enemy, whose appearance previously filled him with dismay. (laughs) 